Well, today we come to the final verses of Colossians, and it ends exactly as you would expect it, doesn't it? You know, most of the epistles in your New Testament, they begin with doctrine, then they give you the application of that doctrine, and then they close with greetings. If you read the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, um, Ephesians, Philippians, Titus, Hebrews, 2 Timothy, 1st, 2nd Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, all of them end just like Colossians. Why is that? Have you ever thought about it? Why is it that the Lord gives you in these epistles the doctrine, the application, and then greetings? Christianity is not meant to be just doctrinal presuppositions. It's truth that needs action. The doctrinal statements in chapters 1 and 2 are followed with the application in chapter 3. And now in chapter 4, Paul gives you this greeting to his fraternity of friends. Keep in mind, Paul is in a Roman prison. And he's now going to give you a verbal group snapshot of those that are involved in ministry with him. We get emails from those who we partner with in ministry from around the world, and they always include pictures. If that had been done in the first century, this is who would have been in the photograph. And it would have read across the top, Pauline Evangelistic Association. Tychicus, been right up front. Tychicus. He's mentioned five times in Scripture. Uh, you read about him not only here, but you see him in Ephesians, in Titus, in Timothy, just before Paul dies. You see his name again in the book of Exodus. And one of the things you'll notice, every time you read about Tychicus, it's when times are tough. Remember uh, Paul, following the third missionary journey, goes to Jerusalem where he expects to die. And it's Tychicus who goes with him. Uh, Tychicus is kind of like an offensive lineman. You know what I mean? He does what needs to be done in the trenches. And he seeks no glory for himself. As I was going through this this week, I, I thought of C.T. Studd. This was a, a guy back in the day who was a great athlete, terrific athlete at Cambridge University. And he came from a very wealthy family. Um, I mean, his dad left him a boatload of money and he was going to give it all away in order to go to the mission field. He, was just, he, he wanted to give it away because he wanted to trust the Lord to provide for him. And so he gives away everything but $5,000. And his wife said, why did you keep the $5,000? He said, well, I figured I would need some sort of financial support. She said, I thought you were going to trust the Lord for everything. He said, okay, okay. And I, I'm not sure I'm going from memory here, but I, I think that he gave that last $5,000 to George Mueller for the, for the orphanage, for the ministry there in England. But C.T. Studd gave away all of that, and he joined with six other guys. They were known as the Cambridge Seven. And these were the guys who committed themselves to answering Hudson Taylor's call to take the gospel to China and Africa and India. And you know what they called themselves? the ETCs, the etceteras. <laughs> Meaning that the life that they lived for themselves really had no significance. It was only what they had done for Christ that really mattered. Matter of fact, C.T. Studd wrote a poem. 
I, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. It's several stanzas. But it, it, um, it's a poem called Only One Life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he wrote that to explain the focus that the Cambridge Seven had. Jim Elliott, another missionary, came out of Moody, put it this way. He said, we're all nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. We're all nobodies. Tychicus was that selfless. He really was. Um, he does whatever Paul needs for him to do in order for the ministry to, to accomplish the Lord's eternal purposes. Matter of fact, back in Acts 20, the Apostle Paul is going to these major churches in Thessalonica and in Philippi and, and Corinth, and they're collecting money from these predominantly Gentile churches in order to provide financial support for the church in Jerusalem that is struggling. And the church in Jerusalem is primarily Jewish. And yet it's Tychicus. He's one of the Gentiles that's going on this very long, difficult, dangerous journey to collect this money and then to have it delivered to those Christians in Jerusalem. Paul is arrested for proclaiming the gospel. He's sent to a Roman prison. And who do you think goes there with him? Tychicus stays with him. When Paul says, I want my good friend Titus to come to me. Titus is the pastor there of the church on the island of Crete. And what does he do? He sends Tychicus and another guy to the church there on that island and says, you go care for the church so that Titus can come to me. And Tychicus says, I will, I will. Later, when, when Paul wants Timothy, who's pastoring the church at Ephesus, he wants Timothy to come to him. What does he do? He sends Tychicus to Timothy's church. You go pastor the church so that this, this young man that I've been mentoring can come to me. I need to see him. I need to talk to him. There are things I need to share with him. You are the one I trust to go and take care of that church. And so who do you think Paul is going to trust to carry these epistles? He's probably got the epistles uh, to not only the church at Colossae and the one that he wrote to his good friend Philemon but also the one that he wrote to Ephesus. He's got the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. And he is to take them to the church at Colossae, to Laodicea, to Areopolis, and to Ephesus. Who do you think that Paul is going to trust to go by foot across Italy and then cross the Adriatic Sea, and then go across Greece by foot before he goes across the Aegean Sea and up the Lycus River Valley to deliver these Theonustos, God-breathed scriptures. Who can you trust, Paul? Tychicus. That's who. And we know nothing about this guy's family. We know nothing about his education or his occupation. All we know is that when the Lord chose Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he gave Paul Tychicus. A faithful friend whom he could trust with any task. It didn't matter whether it was physical or spiritual. He can pastor churches or he can travel by land and by sea. He's willing to do whatever needs to be. 
I've been in ministry 50 years as of last March. And over the last 40 years, there are several men and women, 40 years, they're still here. They're still my friends. I can count on them. And there have been some who have come in the last 20, some in the last 10, some in the last five. But there are, are some who, when they take me out back and put me down like the did old yeller, there are some, like Tickus, who will be the last to let me down. And you know who you are. You know who you are. Paul says, I trust this guy to make this delivery. And the Colossian church is meeting in his friend's home, Philemon. And Philemon had a guy working for him named Onesimus. Actually, if you look at it in the Greek, it's Onesimus, but we'll call him Onesimus. And what's he do? He steals. He steals from his employer. And then he takes off. He runs away. He ends up going to Rome, and there, for whatever reasons, he's eventually arrested, and he's put into jail. And who do you think is in jail in Rome? The Apostle Paul. What do you think it's like to be locked up in a cell with the Apostle Paul? What is that like? Well, Paul writes a letter to Philemon. And he says, I want to tell you about Onesimus. I have become like a father to him while we've been in prison together. And I'm telling you, he's got a strong faith in Christ. And so I am sending him back with Tychicus. Because I want him to make things right. He needs to make things right. And so he writes this 25-verse letter to Philemon. And he sends it with them. Why? Look, everybody knows Philemon. That's where the church meets is in his home. Everybody knows what Onesimus did. Everybody. It's been the scuttlebutt all across Colossae. Arthur Conrad Doyle, remember him? He's the guy that wrote Sherlock Holmes. He was also a practical joker, and on one occasion he sent a telegram out to 12 of his closest friends, and he said, all is discovered, flee! Every single one of them left England. It was a joke. It was just a joke. But they all had something in their closet that they feared was now going to be made known. John MacArthur said that one Sunday from the pulpit, he mentioned he had met with a guy that week who claimed that he would never, ever, ever think of worshiping at Grace Community Church. And John said, why? And he said, because there's an attorney that goes to your church that I don't even want to be in the same building with him, much less the same church, because he's so crooked. And when John shared that from the pulpit that Sunday, he said at the end of the sermon, he had 23 guys in his church come up and ask, is it I that he was talking about? Do we not all have something in our past that if it were made known, we'd be embarrassed? You know, there are two ways you can take God's word. 
One is that you receive it and you make changes. It's called repentance. The other is you ignore it and you leave the same way you came. The Apostle Paul said, look, I'm chief among sinners. But you know what? I've got a testimony about Christ my Savior. And I'll tell you, if the Lord can save a guy like me, he can save anyone. And so Philemon, you're my buddy. I want you to know that Onesimus, though it's well known what he did, we all know what a sinner he was. He's a thief. No question about that. But now he's a Christian. And I am sending him back a changed man. And he's going to make things right. He's going to make things right. These are the two guys that the Apostle Paul is going to trust to carry these letters across land and across sea. And Paul wants these churches to know. He wants them to know about others that are involved in this ministry with him. And so he says, and then I want to tell you about my, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. <laughs> Boy, you talk about a loyal servant. If you go back to Acts 19, they're in Ephesus, right? And Paul had had such a positive response to the preaching of the gospel, people began to burn their witchcraft paraphernalia. And the businesses that were promoting idolatry were taking a financial hit. I mean, they feared they might go bankrupt. They're going to go belly up because they were making a ton of money off of making these little trinkets for the Temple of Diana. And now people were no longer believing in that nonsense. And they're going to lose everything. And so there is a riot. The effectiveness of the gospel causes so much fear that it's at around 20,000 20,000 gathered at the amphitheater there. And they're all shouting. They're all chanting. They're at a rally here. We are going to kill these guys. And who is it that they drag into the amphitheater? Aristarchus. Why? He's Paul's co-worker. He's in this up to his neck with the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, wherever the battle for the gospel was raging, this guy was there. He was like General Ashby, as they said in the Civil War, he always rode to the sound of the guns. Martin Luther once said, unless a soldier fights where the battle is thickest, he's a well-clad coward. A coward. It's not enough to be a soldier if you're not willing to fight as a soldier. It's one thing to come together on Sunday and to sing songs and take communion and give our offering and worship the Lord. It's quite another thing to show up on Monday and go into that biology classroom where that professor is ranting and raging about how he believes that you can have a cause greater than its effect. He believes that you can have life without meaning and purpose. And he's looking right at you. You believe that too, right? What do you do? It's not enough to come in here and sing songs on Sunday and then get up on Monday and go into the office coward 
afraid to speak up about who you are in Christ. It's like Daniel. He was a good employee. But if it meant having to go to the lion's den, so be it. So be it. What's it like when you're sitting at lunch with that client? You know his soul is lost. You have any courage to speak up to him about light in the midst of darkness? Truth in the midst of lies? Concern, compassion for his soul? Or are you only interested in the sale? See, Aristarchus, he was no sunshine patriot. Man, this guy, this guy went with the Apostle Paul where the battle was the hottest. And he never backed down, never. Even in the presence of a riot. You know, one pastor was lamenting the fact that too many today are looking for churches to meet their needs rather than looking for churches that will prepare them to serve where they are needed. Aristarchus was not someone who would say, what have you done for me lately, Paul? Aristarchus was a loyal friend who would say, where do you need me, Paul? Where do you need me? What do you need me to do? This one thing, I know you can count on me. You can count on me. Many have absolutely no idea that my wife is an absolute beautiful pianist. Beautiful pianist. We've played several hundreds of weddings together. She was the pianist in my church in Indiana. She was the pianist in the church we started here in Lexington. And then we started Wellington, and along came Kevin. And Kevin can play. And you know what Tanya said? I'll tell you what she didn't say. She didn't say, no, 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 no. This is my ministry. This is what I do. Kevin, you're going to need to just stand there and lead singing. She didn't say that. She said, man, he can play beautifully. Where do you need me? Where do you need me? We need you in the children's ministry. Okay, then I'll do it. I'll do it. And it has been done. She's a female Aristarchus. She's loyal. She's dependable. I'll go where I'm needed most. And I won't back down. I won't quit. Paul says Aristarchus was one of those guys that was of great comfort to me because I could count on him. I could count on him. And not only him, but there's Mark, you know, the cousin of Barnabas. Many believe this is certainly John Mark who went with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey and, 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 and he got scared. <laughs> and he didn't finish the trip. He left. He went home. So when you're reading in Acts 15 and you see that Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to leave on their second missionary journey, visit the various churches, they, they get in an argument with one another. What are they arguing about? Over Mark. Mark. He wants to go. Paul says no. No, 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 no. I gave him a chance to serve. The kid got scared. He quit. He left. I can't trust him. He's not going. The scriptures 
record that this was a very sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. A sharp disagreement. So Paul takes Silas. Barnabas says, I'm taking John Mark. And they go their separate ways. And you will not see John Mark's name again after Acts 16 until you get to Colossians 4. Now, as Paul is about to die, you do read in 2 Timothy 4, he's in a Roman prison. He's writing his last words to his his, uh, friend Timothy, who's been mentoring. And he says, I want you to get Mark and bring him with you. He is useful to me for ministry. Anybody able to identify with this? Anybody here think that the Lord can't use you because you've made some boneheaded decision that has hurt your credibility? If so, consider Mark. Consider Mark. Paul would not use him for a time because he had not been trustworthy at Pamphylia. He got scared. He quit. He left. But that doesn't mean that he can't repent. And then he can't recover. And we've all got embarrassing things, don't we? That we'd like to forget. And rather than wallow in self-pity, why not repent? Why not get up and work to regain your credibility? This instruction to, to welcome Mark, if or when he comes to minister among you, Maybe Paul's way of saying, I don't want my first impression of Mark as someone who is undependable to be the final word on his life because that's not fair to Mark. He's repented. He's been restored. There's absolutely no reason for you to reject Mark in in his present ministry because of his past failure. Peter, in his first epistle, speaks of how he worked with John Mark. Boy, you want to talk about somebody who knows how to fail. Peter knew what it was like to fail. He knew what it was like to quit. He knew what it was like to be afraid. He remembers only too clearly that night when that young lady said, Yeah, he's with that guy you're about to crucify. He said, No, 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 not me. I don't even know the man. Peter remembers. When Paul is about to head out on the road to Galatia, they're going to go over some treacherous mountains. A lot of robbers hiding, attacking. It's dangerous, really dangerous. And John Mark says, I'm not going. I'm not going. I am headed back to Jerusalem. And he remembers that only too well. And so Peter comes alongside him and says, I know what it's like to be afraid. I know what it's like to fail. I know what it's like to quit. But I also know what it is like to be restored. Peter is most likely the one who helps John Mark as much as anyone. He is the one who's going to come alongside John Mark 
and help him as he records the gospel. The gospel that will be circulated among the Romans. The gospel according to Mark. That's this young man. And yet I don't think we can underestimate Barnabas' role in his restoration either. When the, when the church in Jerusalem didn't trust Saul of Tarsus. Remember that? Because of his former days of, of murdering Christians. When Saul said, I have encountered the Lord and I now serve Christ. They said, yeah, we don't know that we necessarily believe that. Yeah, don't be coming to our church. We don't trust you. And it's Barnabas, who's the guy that goes over and puts his arm around Saul of Tarsus and says, he is my friend. I believe in him. Take him in. Just like we saw Pee Wee Reese out of Louisville do for Jackie Robinson in 1947 up in Cincinnati. When the crowd is booing Jackie, Pee Wee walks over and puts his arm around his shoulder and says, you boo him, you boo me. You're one of our local guys. We love you. Yeah, You love me, you love him. That's Barnabas. When Barnabas begins to accompany Saul to the churches, what do you read in Scripture? Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And then as Saul gains prominence, what happens? Around Acts 13, things begin to change. He drops his Hebrew name Saul and takes on his, his Roman surname, Paul. And what do you read in Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15? It's no longer Barnabas and Saul. No, no. It's Paul first and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. When it becomes obvious that the Holy Spirit intends to use Paul in a significant way, Barnabas has no problem stepping aside. When John Mark messes up, Barnabas goes and gets him and restores him. Takes him with him on that second missionary trip. Maybe that's why Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, chapter 6, says, If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore him gently. Now, you who are not spiritual won't do it because... You're going to be all puffed up and boastful like they were in 1 Corinthians 5. No, no. It's going to have to be somebody who is spiritual who will come alongside them and restore them gently. You know, it's considered the worst blunder in college football when in 1929, Rose Bowl. Anybody see that? Roy Rigels, playing center for the California Golden Bears, his good friend, Benny Lom, fumbled the ball. Roy picked it up and began to run. He was so excited. I mean, he's a center. He doesn't get to carry the ball very often. So he recovers that fumble, man. He takes off for the end zone. The problem is he was going the wrong way. Benny realized it. He tries to catch up to him. And he's yelling, wrong way, Roy, wrong way. Roy thought he was saying, run, Roy, run. So he kept going towards the wrong end zone. And so Benny grabs him and spins him around and takes him down and stays with him until hordes of Georgia Tech 
Yellow jackets pile on him. Rigels was so distraught over what he had done. They went in at halftime, trailing. He was so depressed. He didn't want to play the second half. I don't want to go out there. Those people hate me out there. They're booing me. I don't want to play. I'm done. The coach said, Roy, we're counting on you. You've got to go. And he went back out there and played a great game. He blocked a, a Georgia Tech punt that led to the only touchdown that California would get. Now, they'd still lose by one point. But Reichels would go on. He was still, he was still an All-American. He would come out of college and serve in World War II, and then he would come out and coach college football, and then he would open up his own business. He was very successful in his own business. But the focus of his life became to encourage others who have made life-altering mistakes. There was a high school player in 1957 who intercepted a pass and ran 55 yards the wrong way and was devastated by that. Who was it that contacted him? Roy Reichels. Who was it that helped him put that incident back in its proper perspective? Who was it that helped him pick up and move on from that instead of beating himself up over it? It was Roy Reichels as he did many others. So how was he able to, to recover from such a blunder? How, how could he take such a negative and make it into a positive? He did not allow a past mistake to define him as a failure in the future. That's the past. That's John Mark. That's what Barnabas told him. That's what Peter told him. And with the encouragement of Barnabas and the instructions from a godly friend like Peter, they refused to allow his past failures to define his future service. And so John Mark ends up becoming a great comfort to Paul. And then there is Jesus called Justice. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. But this young man probably thought it was inappropriate as a Christian maybe to use that name and so he defers to his Latin surname Justice the Righteous. He's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture so we we don't know anything else about him but do you know what we do know? What's the one thing we know? He was there. He was there serving alongside the Apostle Paul. Oh, he didn't get to write a, a gospel record for the Romans like John Mark did. And, and he didn't get uh, read about in the, in the scriptures as being this great encourager the way Barnabas was. But I tell you, Paul sure appreciated him. Paul loved him. And the Lord put his name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision. These are the only Jewish friends who have been a comfort to me. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? Paul, what are you talking about? Do you not have any other Jewish Christian friends? Well, of course I do. So what, what do you mean these are the only men who brought you comfort? Well, you got to remember that when Paul was taken from a prison in Jerusalem to Rome, he's under house arrest there. So what does he do? The first thing he does is he brings all these Jewish leaders over and he begins to teach them from the Old Testament scriptures and show them how Christ was the fulfillment of those scriptures. 355 of them. And some of them come to faith. Others did not. 
But even among those who did, even those who did believe, not all of them supported Paul. Paul was a very controversial figure. Not all of them would support him. These three did. These three did. They were of great comfort to him. Now this next fellow gets a lot of press. Why is that? Epaphras. He's the founding pastor of the church there at Colossae. Chapter 1, Paul said, he's the one who brought the gospel to you. In chapter 2, he said, he's the one who has taught you. Chapter 4, he's the one who prays for you. And Paul said, I bear witness that he has worked hard for you, very hard. And for those in Laodicea and Areopolis, those were two cities that were within a 10-mile radius of, of Colossae. And so when Gnosticism begins seeping into the church, this guy goes to war. Man, he is teaching in all of these locations. He is praying for all of these people. He is so concerned about how this error is going to impact their lives. Is it going to compromise their faith? And so Paul says he always is struggling. Agonizomenos. Agonizomenos. That's the word from which we get agonizing. It's the word used for when Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying prior to the cross. He's agonizing. He's struggling in prayer for these people, for their spiritual well-being. And there's absolutely no indication he ever got caught up in his own agenda. He loves the Lord. Man, does he care about his people. He has a pastor's heart. And therefore, he works hard for the church. And then there's Luke. Luke is Paul's compassionate physician. <laughs> you know, when, Luke, uh, uh, when uh, Paul goes on his first missionary trip, he's sick all the time. You ever notice that? He's always sick. So on his second trip, he takes Luke with him. And they were very good friends. And Luke will be the only Gentile to record the life of Christ. And he'll record for us the book of Acts. Why? Because he personally knows Peter, Paul, and Mary. And he has interviewed them extensively. And under the direction of the Apostle Paul and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he gives us this wonderful record of the life of Christ and sends it out to the Gentiles. And then notice that Paul says, among those who greet you is Demas. And that's all he says. That's all he says. Maybe he was already sensing that Demas was losing his enthusiasm for ministry. Because one of the last things that he wrote in 2 Timothy 4 is that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Doesn't say that he deserted Christ, but he deserted Paul. Deserted Paul. Because he loved this present world. Remember in Homer's The Iliad and the Odyssey? You had to read that in college, right? Remember when the sirens were calling to the ships? What did Ulysses do? Ulysses plugged the ears of his men with beeswax. And then he ordered them to tie him to the mast. Why? Why did he do that? So that they nor he could do something stupid like jump in the sea at the call of the sirens. 
Ulysses knew that he couldn't resist the call to his own destruction. So he had to deal with it in advance. It's where we get the idea of the Ulysses Pact, known as the living will. You've got to make decisions, good decisions, sound decisions, when you are of sound mind. Don't wait until you're caught up in the midst of the, the emotions of the temptation. A professor at Dallas Seminary told his students every year, you can destroy 40 years of ministry with one foolish decision. Make up your mind before the temptation arrives that you will not get caught up in the emotion of the moment, that you will not ruin your witness for Christ. He would say that every year. And 20 years later, one of the guys that sat in his class and heard that ignored the professor's advice. And he left his wife and began living with a young girl. Having loved this present world, he made a foolish decision. You know, in the first great awakening, you've heard me say many times that there were lots of people drawn to the preaching of Christ in large numbers. And they were making these outward professions of faith. But how can you know? How can you know if there's an inward conversion of the heart? True repentance is always evidenced by perseverance. And that's why when someone said, I became a Christian, that great evangelist in the first great awakening, that great evangelist, George Whitfield, would say, we'll see. We'll see. May it never be said of you or of me or of me. Do you remember when that guy used to have such a strong testimony within the church? But having loved this present world, whatever happened to them? Where did they end up going? What, what, what did they end up doing? I mean, this is why the apostle Peter said, make your calling and election sure. You've got to be of sound mind and persevere. Don't compromise an eternal call for a temporary pleasure. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Demas. And in the final verses, Paul sends his personal greetings to those who will be his friends in Christ for eternity. Though at the time he had not met them, he had heard about their work. He heard about Nympha, who was hosting a church in her home. Many believe this is the church at Laodicea. And then there's Archippus. Many believe uh, he is Philemon's son. He's the one who is encouraged to read these letters to the various churches, including the one from Laodicea, which, Laodicea, which many believe was the book of Ephesians. And then Paul takes the pen from his secretary's hand. He's been dictating this. And he writes with his own hand, Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Well, this is Paul's fraternity of friends. People called by the Lord and knitted together for his eternal purposes as the body of Christ. And you know, if we were to take a group photo of you today, we would see the exact same warriors, same servants, same encouragers, just different names. Just different names. So what are some of the lessons that we can learn from this? Let me give you just two or three real quick ones. Number one, don't underestimate 
the need for faithful friends. You know, in ministry, we experience a lot of spiritual warfare. I mean, on a weekly basis. Attacks that, that seek to rip apart marriages, to destroy families, to discourage servants, to cause people to, to love this present world and want to, to go another way. And I tell you, it can, it can make you weary. And one of the most encouraging things that the Lord can give us in ministry are faithful friends in Christ. People we can count on. They will stay through the thick and the thin. They will ride to the sound of the guns and will stay with us. Secondly, I heard Pastor Richard Caldwell down in Houston say that pastors moving from church to church, either because of discouragement or better opportunities, whatever it is, oftentimes weakens churches. But then he said, I'll tell you something else that weakens churches. It's those who hop from church to church. It causes the body of Christ to suffer. And, and those who serve together for longer periods of time, he said, there's a great advantage of that. You see, you know, what, what happens is, is you end up learning one another's strengths and weaknesses, and it helps you to learn how to better work together as a team. You know one another. You know one another. And so it's not just a matter of being faithful today or tomorrow or this week. It's a matter of being faithful for the long haul. And then thirdly, don't assume if everyone doesn't know what you're doing behind the scenes that your service is not important or that it goes unnoticed by the Lord. We got a lot of people in this church that most of you have absolutely no idea how difficult it would be for us to function as a church if it were not for those individuals. And the Lord sees them. Oh, he knows them. Their name is in the Lamb's book of life for eternity. Are you someone that would be considered a faithful member within the fraternity of friends that the Lord has knitted together for his eternal purposes? Do you, I love this church. Because it's made up of people whom I dearly care about. And some have been with me for decades. Others have come more recently. But I want you to know, no matter what you go through, I will go through it with you. And I'm hoping that you will do the same. If you have any questions, you can go to the connect table. You can meet me in my office this week. But right now, we're going to stand and pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful for the grace that you have shown us. Lord, we don't deserve it. I mean, the compassion we have for those who are lost comes from knowing that there we go but for your grace. We've given you no reason to remove the scales from our eyes.
to soften the hardness of our hearts, to draw us to you like a moth drawn to a flame. But Lord, we're very grateful for it. Oh, we are so grateful. And Lord, I pray that this church will be faithful. Faithful to the gospel, not just when we gather on Sundays to worship, but when we are out there on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, wherever it is we go, may you find us faithful. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.